We all have a yearning for love, but relationships can be confusing and complicated. Dr. Tammy Balashevsky says it all starts from within. It starts with a journey to center. Here's your host for Journey to Center on Empower Radio, Dr. Tammy Balashevsky. Hello, my beautiful friends and you lovely souls. I would imagine if you're like me, you'd prefer a quick fix in your relationships and in your lives. But I think if you want sustainable, authentic, and lasting change, we need more than a quick fix. Because in truth, there are no magic pills. If you've listened to my show before, you know I'm a fan of psychology. But I believe there are limitations to this relatively new philosophy and its ability to heal us at the deepest level. I think if we really want to facilitate lasting change, we need to balance and blend our understanding of psychology with spirituality. One without the other is incomplete. One of my favorite quotes is from Pierre Delar de Chardin. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yes, the mind and our human aspect is important, but I believe in order to become really whole, we need to address the soul. When I was getting my degree in psychology, I was always bringing God, the soul, love, and spirituality into my papers and classroom conversations, which really seemed to annoy some of my professors. And so I found I didn't really fit into the realm of normal psychology. I did some course correction and found myself going a different direction. My subsequent education and degrees are in the realms of spiritual psychology and metaphysics. I've personally found this to be a better, more rounded, more effective, and more fulfilling path, but we all have the opportunity and responsibility to find what works best for us. So I'm excited to be delving into this conversation about psychology, its upside, and its limitations with my expert and guest, David Bedrick. David is a counselor, counselor, educator, and attorney. He spent eight years teaching psychology and philosophy on the faculty of the University of Phoenix and has taught in the Navy, the American Society of Training and Development, the Process Work Institute, Psychological Associations, and for groups focusing on personal growth. David is the author of a very interesting book, which I have read and would highly recommend. Talking back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. In his book, David introduces a fresh approach to addressing our disturbing feelings and behaviors and encourages a love-based psychology rooted in the belief that there is profound meaning in our struggles, which can be healed when compassionately reframed. So, David, thank you so much for being here today on Journey to Center. Thank you, Tammy. It's a pleasure. I, I love your your quote about being spiritual beings. That's a, that'll be a good lead-in for many things we can talk about today. Oh, yes. I think it's a great place to start. So I would love to talk about your title to this book and how this amazing book came into being. Let's just start there. Okay. Um, well, uh, I guess there's a few things. I guess the, the most interesting to me, the funniest part, was that I was writing a book on shame because I think shame as a way of thinking and viewing things is predominant in the way we look at ourselves. And what I mean by that is we look at ourselves often as if when something disturbs us, there's something wrong with us. If I have a relationship pattern that's not working, I think, what's wrong with me? Or if I get hurt too easily, quote-unquote, I think, what's wrong with me? Or if I eat things too much, I think, what's wrong with me? And that 
approach tends to be shaming. So I was writing a book on shame, and uh, it was taking me forever. I think some people have that experience with books. And uh, mm-hmm. one day I was on one of those elliptical exercise machines, and I turned the TV on, and, I, and Dr. Phil's show was on. And I started literally talking back to the show. Why are you saying that? I think that's shaming. And these things I was saying out loud, and I thought, maybe it's going to be easier writing that book. <laughs> well, five years later, it wasn't only easy, but the, the book came into being. Yeah, it, it can take, a, I can tell it's a labor of love. You put a lot of heart and soul into it. So I, I know it, it can be a challenge birthing a book. Uh, it took me four years to write my first one. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough job. So I, I just want to commend you for it. Thank you. Um, you. You have referred to as shame being the master emotion. I found that really interesting. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that? Oh, that's a great question. I can't remember who first used that phrase, but it was a writer. And I, I ought to have the quote, but I, but I don't. But I, the, the phrase stayed with me. What happens when we suffer a certain difficulty? It could be an abuse or it could be a minor hurt. And we are looked at not as if we have been injured, but look like as if something's wrong with us. If I didn't say that, Tammy, then I wouldn't, my father wouldn't have done that, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or I get a hurt and someone says, well, where were you walking or why did you do that? Or that doesn't seem like that big a deal or come on, stiff upper lip. Something that dismisses what happens. Our filters get changed to where instead of thinking, Outer things affect me. Somebody just insulted me. I didn't like that. That hurt. That made me angry. Rather than having those reactions, people turn inward and think, I'm screwed up in some way. And that Mm -hmm. fundamental perception that can get deeply embedded over time, if that continues to happen, becomes a lens through which we look at our life. So rather than think, uh, that teacher wasn't a very good math teacher, I think, I don't understand math. I'm not good at math. Many people think things like that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that particular mm-hmm. view then becomes the way we look at our own healing. Maybe this will heal me. Maybe this diet will make me thinner. Those are not only bad ideas, but often they come from that self-perception that something's wrong with me that needs to be fixed. And as potent an energy that is, I want to change. I want to change. I'll try anything. As a potent, that's a very motivation, strong motivation. It almost never succeeds in a sustainable way, so it undermines things. So in that way, shame is that kind of can be at a root of the way we do things, not what we do. And that way often leads to something that looks like a, like a, um, a self-derailment, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. You know, as you're speaking of this, I feel like the blame-shame thing can really have us proceed down like a, a, a downward spiral, a trajectory of, of negativity. So do you feel that... You know, and I, I would I would agree if, if this is the case. Doctor Phil does a bit of shaming. Do you think that's prevalent in psychology? I think it's prevalent in psychology, not just by psychologists. Some psychologists, like any field, are better than others, right? Some lawyers are better than others. Some doctors are better than others. But it's prevalent in ourselves inside. So then we go to our our healers, our psychologists, our meditation cushions, wherever we go to get some kind of uplift or healing, as it were. If we go with that kind of motivation, I'm no good. If I could do this, I would be a better, whatever you would call it, right? A partner, person, more loved or whatever. When we approach things in that particular way, it becomes 
such a strong embedded notion that and not challenge. So if I go, so if some, let's imagine someone comes to me for therapy and says, "What's wrong with me? I'm so depressed. What's wrong with me? I'm so depressed." I'm, I'm exaggerating the way they would say it, right? For the sake of the audience, I've said that before. So, <laughs> right, right. And now, if yeah, I as there. a therapist kind of go, say, "Oh yeah, that I agree. You're so depressed. Let's anti-depress you. Let's yeah. up you. you right? Let's get you away from that downward motion that you have, that downward energy, that low energy." Then I'm inadvertently going along with your shaming perspective. That doesn't mean I don't want to help you with that depression, but I don't know anything about what you mean by that depression. I haven't really understood it. So I'm just assuming your point of view, which might be a shaming point of view, is correct. And that way I inadvertently support or amplify or encourage or affirm a self-shaming view, which often, like I said, is is not so helpful. Yeah, I remember being in therapy and they're like, oh, yes, you're depressed. There is something wrong. You know, we'll get you on some medication and that'll fix it. And as I tried to take the medication, I found myself feeling even worse. And uh, when I said I I, I couldn't do it, the therapist definitely shamed me by saying I was resisting treatment. And I I didn't want to resist treatment. I had an authentic desire and intention to heal. And, And it was such a challenging period of my life. And um I know you have equated mainstream psychology to allopathic medicine, which I would agree with. And I would like to hear more about that from your perspective. Thanks for asking that. Um, Allopathic medicine looks at our difficulties, again, as if something is wrong. We're outside a norm. I have 102 temperature. I should be 98.6. I'm not normal, quote unquote, right? I should be, take my heavy temperature lowered. I think great, or I have certain back. I cut myself, and it looks like there's an infection. That's not good. That's bad. Let's put some antibiotics onto that and make that go away. To all of which I say, for the most part, Amen, because I have been helped. And I, if I had an infection, I wouldn't just. Uh, I, I would go to a doctor, right, <laughs> and and think there's nothing wrong with going to get that. So I'm not against that. But that basic viewpoint that says let's correct what we look at tends to be in the psychological realm an anti-diversity. It's a normalizing. So if, you're from a, if you have a different kind of personality or a different kind of gift or from a different culture, you may not fit within the norm, the mainstream, the main mm-hmm. flow of the culture. In that case, the culture can easily look at you as if you have a pathology. Right? Mm-hmm. A great example of this, but it's been corrected mostly in psychology, is how uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual folks were looked at some years ago. Right. At one point, mm-hmm. the culture had a moral point of view, many people, that said, this is not a good thing. We don't like it. Okay, well, some people can like You don't have to like it. Right? That's fine. I, I wish people were more open, but people have, get to have their view. But then psychology comes along and says, you're right. That doesn't look like the norm. It's different. We will call that an illness. We'll call that a diet. We'll make a diagnosis for that. So now what looks different becomes a psychological uh, pathology as opposed to a difference. And that, hap- that, that happens to, some, to many of us, actually, in the way we treat ourselves. That's so interesting. As you're saying this, I'm, I'm hearing um, normal means average. And I personally don't aspire to be average. I mean, that's a strange thing to aspire to. <laughs> Isn't it a strange thing? I, lo- I love what you were saying before about resistance. So if you, read, read, if you looked up resistance on, on Google and looked for well, resistance and psychology, then you would see the idea of resistance being treated as if you're getting in the way of healing. That's something that's not good. 
Let's have strategies as counselors to overcome, get around people's resistance. However, that treats resistance like there's something wrong with it. If I offered you a suggestion and you, quote unquote, resisted me, why not think that my suggestion is not so good for you and that your resistance is a good thing? If I said, Tammy, eat lobsters, but you're allergic to lobster. I'm allergic to lobster, right? And you said, I don't think so. I wouldn't think that you were somehow wrongfully resisting. I think you were taking care of yourself. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. great that you know what you like or what makes you feel well or not. So for many people who, who experience themselves or are looked at as if they're resistant, have a power in them. And that power says, no, no, thank you. That's not right for me. They need that resistance in many areas of their life. So if they're coming to a counselor showing resistance, now this wouldn't be true all the time, but many times if they come to a counselor showing some resistance, I would think they're pushing against me. Maybe there are other places where they're going along with things that aren't so good for them. Maybe I better help them push against me more, resist more so they get to know their strengths to create a boundary or say no or follow their own correct path. So resistance can be the beginning, if loved, not shamed, of something really wonderful, a power a person needs. Hmm. I love the sounds of that. It sounds like you really want to support people in getting in touch with their own inner compass. Beautiful. Yeah, I love, I love that. That's right. People have an inner compass. That's a great way, I haven't said it that way, but that's a great way to say it. If someone says, we were talking about depression before, I am depressed, what's wrong with me? I would say, before, in, in, if I were talking to you on the side, I'd say, I have no idea what that person means to me by depression. Let's ask them, right? I'd say, what do you mean by depression? And they'd say, oh, I can't get up and do my job as much as I used to. I'm, I'm tired. I want to be in bed all day. So uh, they might say, some people will say that. And I might say, rather than trying to go against them, I like their compass says, go downward, go to bed, right? So I might mm. say, why don't you sit back in the chair and relax and close your eyes as if you are really, really depressed. I'm playing, right? For, for the sake of, of course, now I love this. Right? And I say, go ahead, get mm-hmm. really, really depressed. And if they, did, if they went with my suggestion, if they leaned back and closed their eyes and went, oh, now this beautiful sigh, I would say, hmm, that's a lovely sigh. Because their body and their energy is saying something feels good about laying back. And I, they laid back and they'd say, ah, and I'm thinking of a particular client. And I'd say, tell me about that. Ah, gosh, I'm always, tr- I'm always on. I'm always trying to get it right. I'm always trying to be the person I want. I thought I was going to come to therapy and I'd have to do a good job here. I say, oh, so depression for that person looks like not trying to do a quote-unquote good job. It looks like sitting back, going into themselves, into their own feelings. So I think what they're calling depression for that person looks like a good direction. Their compass says, go down and into yourself. Don't try to please everybody. Depression is intelligent in that way, but they need to get in touch with that intelligence. Right now, they're only against it. It's a pathology. Depression's bad. I need to be up, they think. I love what you're saying, and I I totally agree. I think there's reasons for our symptoms, be it emotional or physical. There's deeper information in it, and I love that you hold space for your clients to get in touch with what that information is, that you don't have to know. You trust that there's an inner wisdom in them, and you hold space for them to tap into it for themselves. That's a great way to say it. People really do have that information inside them. They have an Mm -hmm. inner teacher, if you will, but... They're not always in touch with it, especially around their difficulties. 
I'm in mm-hmm. touch with it for the things that I'm that work well for me. This is my this is how I lead myself. This is how I got my book done. I could tell you proudly. But then if I talk about how I get uh, pissy and resentful at times. I don't have very good guidance about that. I think you sh- people shouldn't be that way. <laughs> so mm-hmm. right in the place we need the wisdom and love the most, which is where we're suffering and don't look so good, according to the culture or to ourselves, right in that place, we offer ourselves the least loving guidance and often the most critical guidance. Gosh, I can't believe I ate that ice cream again. I'm on a diet, right? Mm-hmm. How, come I, how come I had the third relationship? It's the same thing. I can't believe I got hurt by that particular person. Why am I always getting feeling uh, voiceless around my father or my family? How come authorities intimidate me as if I ought not be? So in those areas where we suffer the most, we tend to turn against ourselves and then look mm-hmm. for help from people who might end up inadvertently affirming our viewpoint. Yeah, there's something wrong with me, as opposed to going into that. I like what you said, that their their compass and saying, hmm, you have a certain reaction. I bet you that's leading you right to the intelligence I would never be able to come up with, but I can help you find it. Mm, That's so beautiful. You just gave me goosebumps. So yeah, rather than beating ourselves up when we get to those tender places or challenging places, we apply even more compassion and more love. That's right. And the Dr. Phil show then sometimes, and this is not Dr. Phil himself, I don't know Dr. Phil, but on his show, there tends, it tends to reinforce that orientation. Mm-hmm. He says, what are you thinking? Is that working for you? As if eating, if I knew ice cream every night was not working for me, I would stop it. But I've already probably been telling myself that for months or years, right? David, don't eat ice cream. David, don't eat french fries, you know, whatever. Exercise more. So having one more person tell me with even more authority and power might make me turn against myself more, but the odds of it helping are low in, in the diet area, for instance, but it's mm-hmm. true for many areas. Diet industry is a $60 billion industry. And I've read like 200 studies. The, for the most part, 5 to 10% of the people are sustainably helped. That means most people can lose weight in a short period of time, in a few weeks or a month or a workshop or, or the beginning of a diet plan, but almost nobody, 5 to 10% of the people, mm-hmm. sustain any weight loss from any of those programs. Yes. In yes. fact, because I will mean, isn't enough. I mean, will can get you there, but will's not going to keep you there. I think we need okay. to address those deeper underlying emotional issues as to why we were eating, overeating in the first place. Right. What are you, what are you thinking? Say more. Or what you, you're asking you me? A, a, yes, you seem to have an energy about it. I wanted to hear what you were thinking. No, I do because I struggled. Well, I was a model and I struggled intensely with my body for years to get oh. it to weigh less than it did and tried the diet pills, tried every, every manipulative thing I could to get my body to look a particular way. And you know what? None of it worked. Oh. It wasn't until I learned to love myself exactly as I was that the weight came off and it's no longer an issue. I can eat whatever I want, but it's not because of dieting. It's because I learned to love myself. It's such a deep thing what you're saying. It's, it's, so, it's so radical that people almost think it's benign, meaning very nice. However, I need this intense discipline program to stop myself. So the, the idea of loving ourselves and how, how do we do that um, is, a, is, a, is, an incredible, is an incredible and worthy question. But one thing I wanted to say around the, around the eating less, trying to be thinner, if you look at the data, there is more data that says people who are 
overly concerned with eating and not eating, who have what might be called eating disorders or some level of eating disorder. There's more health risks and people who die from that than being obese. Yet if you look at the newspapers or the magazines or psychology magazines or weight loss magazines, very little is focusing on the, the urge to be thin. Most people think that's a good urge, right? We have an obese culture, we need to be thinner. But more people, especially girls, fourth grade, 10-year-old girls, 80% of them are dieting, about 30% of them would, might need to lose weight on any scale. So we have much more of a problem, in my opinion, with people overemphasizing that they need to be thin, especially girls and women, but, the young, but young girls are really suffering a lot. They don't have a protective mechanism for that information coming, coming at them. I'm not saying people shouldn't lose weight if they want to and, and they have some health reasons, but our culture should also recognize that there's also a kind of illness in trying to make everybody the same shape and everybody thin. It's also hurtful. It is. I really think the most important thing we can do is find our authentic shape, love our authentic shape, not compare ourselves, not compete. Just relax. Love yourself. You know, it's funny because I have friends that go to CrossFit. I have friends that, you know, are in extreme um, sports enthusiasts. And they're like, you want to go? And I'm like, no, because it's not fun for me. It doesn't feel like love to me. It feels like beating myself up. And I did that for years and it wasn't really that effective. Right. So now people go, Tammy, you're so fit. You're how do you do it? How do you stay so thin? I'm like, you know what? I love myself. I work out maybe 15 minutes every other day. And I eat whatever I want. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. my secret. Right. That's a secret. <laughs> the question of loving oneself is such a profound question. It needs, it needs all of us, you know, the, whether those are nutritionists or spiritual guides or people like you and myself talking about what that looks like because how a person loves themselves is a diversity issue, meaning I love myself in a certain way, you love yourself a certain way, and, and there's not a lot of modeling or looking at a person and say, let me help you love yourself. You don't have, Maybe you shouldn't do it my way, but I can help you do it your way. And one of the ways of doing that is by looking at the places where a person struggles the most and showing a person how to believe in what's happening for them. If a person's getting hurt and thinks, why am I getting hurt? That's not so good then I would start helping that person love themselves right there. I'd say, mm -hmm. tell me what happened. Well, I was with my boss, and he said hardly anything to me. And I can't believe how intimidated and hurt I was. And for two days, I, I thought about it, and I thought about, oh, my, what's wrong with me? And I would think, then their reaction, they're thinking about it, they're hurt, their offense, they don't know how to love that yet. They think that's a problem. I would say, let's go back to that meeting with your boss. Do you remember the moment you started feeling that way? Uh, yeah, I think he or she said, now we're going to look at your performance review. There were a few things, <laughs> whatever, right? And I right. say, right, and what happens to you? Well, I notice a tightness inside me. I'd say, very good. Love that tightness. Where is it? Well, it's in my, it's in my arms. I notice they're gripping my chair, and it's in my belly, like it's almost becoming firm and hard. I should really relax. I say, let's not relax yet. You're getting tense and hard. Let's love you as you are. Can you show me more of that hardness? Can you put your hands out as if they're a hard stomach so I can feel how hard they were so I'm not touching a person's stomach that's more intimate? Right. The person might put their hand out and I push against it. I say, show me how hard it is. Now imagine this. They're putting their hand out in front of me. I'm pushing against their hand. And mm -hmm. I, as I push against the hand, I notice they're pushing back. I think, wonderful. We're back to our resistance again, right? 
pushing back. And I said, now keep that hand out. I want to talk to you. I'm going to be your boss. Well, dear Sally, you know uh, there are some things we need to talk about. And I say, oops, I noticed your hand just push a little bit forward. Can you put a word to that? Yeah, slow down. I feel like there's criticism coming. Very good. Smart body. (laughs) Smart person. (laughs) We've just loved what she thought was not a good thing. She should be open and relaxed. She has a little oomph in her and needs that. Otherwise, she's letting things in that may not be right. It may be critical. It may be hurtful. I think that's an intelligent human being, but doesn't know it yet. No one said, I want to find out what's happening for you and trust what's happening for you. Mm, That's so beautiful. I mean, I really do hear so much respect in your approach for this other being, having everything they need, that they're brilliant, that they are worthy. I can imagine people just deeply heal in your presence. Oh, thank you. That's touching. So, you make me shy. No <laughs> <Thank> shucks. <laughs> oh, shucks. And, and you're, you're humble. That's so cute. Yeah. So, like David, we're going to go to break here pretty quick. But say uh, somebody wants to get a copy of your book, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. Where can they find you and how can they get a copy of it? Okay, thanks a lot. Um, so the book is called Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream, Mainstream Psychology. If people Googled Talking Back to Dr. Phil, but the abbreviation for doctor, DR, so talking back to drphil.com, they get to my website, they could find articles I've written for a number of magazines, radio shows, TV, video, all kinds of things there. They can get the book there, um, they can get on a mailing list, they can find out how to contact me, um, or if you typed in talking back to Dr. Phil, you might just end up at Amazon, and you could obviously get the book there, and you can get reader reviews and things like that there as well. That's awesome. So, yeah, you've got a lot of great information there. I was watching some of your uh, videos and reading some of your blogs, and you are a wealth of wisdom. Oh, thank you. Her. Yeah, thank I'm you. really excited about getting into the second part of this program. There's so much more to address. We're going to talk about um, anger, addiction, obsessive behavior, relationships, sex. There's so, so much information here. So, um, David, you break this down into 18 different categories. Your book is broken down into 18 different subjects. Is that right? Yes, six major categories and then 18 uh, sort of individual uh, chapters. That's right. Each chapter looks So no matter what ails you, David has something to say about it. So hang on. We're going to go to break. We're going to be right back with David Bedrick. Hang on. Talk to you in a minute. Hi, Dad. Hey, sweetheart. Where's the little guy? In school? Yep, just dropped him off. Is your hair getting whiter or is that paint? Actually, I'm painting your old room. Did you take down my David Cassidy posters? Nah, I painted over them. Dad. Just kidding. Why were you painting my old room? You had a purple room. Moby Grape. Well, your mom and I are upsizing. We're hosting a foreign exchange student from Cairo. What about me and your grandson? Come on, it'll be a great experience for everybody. We'll never see you. You'll be taking her to the museum and the zoo and... Sweetheart, you know how great it'll be for my grandson to experience another culture. He could learn another language, new customs. I never thought of that. Got an extra paintbrush? (laughs) The time is now. Open up your life. Find out how to have a foreign exchange student live with you. Every family has something special to share. Go to hoststudents.org. That's hoststudents.org. Imagine my grandson speaking Arabic. Victor Ray, this is Scorpion 23. 
three traveling west on MSR Vernon, four victors, 16 packs, request MSR status over, Roger, Scorpion 23, all MSRs and AOR red past 24 hours, three IEDs on MSR Always be casualties. And for our wounded warriors, coming home can sometimes be a battle in itself. American troops who suffer traumatic injuries need the support of every American. Join us and send your message of support to our wounded warriors and their families at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. It's against my religion. I'm giving my dog a bath. You can have pictures of that. Pressure gives me hives. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. Hold on. Let me ask my mom. Sorry, my webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. Unfortunately, I just had my clothes surgically attached to my body. If they got out, I might never be president. I'm already naked, under my clothes. Not even if you were all three Jonas Brothers. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. The more you ask, the less I want to. You're not the boss of me. Nudity makes me vomit. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Empower Radio. Now back to Journey to Center with Dr. Tammy Belashevsky. Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm so honored to be spending some time with you here today on Empower Radio. I'm also honored to be having this compelling conversation with David Bedrick, the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. So, David, thanks for being here with us. You're welcome. It's a great conversation. I think so, too. I'm just loving you. Um, so, David, why do you think Dr. Phil is so popular? Great question. I mean, I, I guess the first answer I should say is I don't really know, uh, but, I have, <laughs> but I do have thoughts about it. If I knew, maybe I'd be that popular. I don't know, but, but maybe not. Um, but I, one of the things that he does is he speaks rather directly to people. Mm-hmm. He confronts people often. Now, I, in my opinion, that's not the most useful psychological psychological approach uh, in, as, as a therapeutic practice sometimes, but most people don't need confrontation. Most people need something else. But uh, I think many of us need help to be direct, confrontive, challenging, uh, mm-hmm. using our voices in, a, in, a, in an empowered way. And I'm, I think maybe we watch him and think, yeah, say that, go get him. Finally, someone's speaking up to that person directly. Maybe many of us really would like that particular skill, and we uh, we watch it and hope hope maybe osmotically we're going to get a little, it's going to rub off on us. I'm going to speak up to my boss, spouse, kids, whoever it's going to be. Well, you're right. I mean, he does speak with a certain authority and power. I mean, you don't want to go up against him. He could slice you to ribbons. That wouldn't be right. that much fun. <laughs> right. So he is entertaining in that regard. Mm-hmm. 
So you say that there is an alternative to mainstream psychology, and you refer to that as love-based psychology. Is that correct? That's right. A love-based psychology has uh, a number of elements that I've been, we've been talking about and, and, uh, and um, exampling here. But mm-hmm. one of those is to trust the person's experience. So rather than me think, I get it, I know what's wrong with you, I'm going to make you better, I trust that you have an experience that I want to get to know, mm-hmm. which often is not the case, as we were talking about with the depression before. A lot of times people don't ask us what's the experience. I'm smoking cigarettes, can you help me stop? Many people don't ask, can you tell me what it's like to put a cigarette in your mouth and inhale that? Everybody's going to describe something different. Everyone's going to be searching and seeking for something different that they need in that cigarette. So if we want to get them off the cigarette, I think that's a reasonably good goal as well. But I want to know their experience. So a love-based psychology says you are a subject, not an object. If you're doing something, there's a reason and there's an experience you're having that I want to know something more about. Uh, So we start there. I love that. You're not just you're you're a soul, not just a a, a compilation of mistakes. (laughs) That's right. You know, and something I found, you know, with um, psychology, the DSM four is their bible. And I was like, this doesn't feel very good to me. Yes. I mean, they're, they're, I don't want to look at what's wrong with people. I want to look right. at, at what's right with them. And I've found personally that people seem to heal in, in that kind of environment. I know I have. It's, it's so radical. I mean, some people are served by the diagnosis, and I say good. And some people are given medications, and they're able, and they're able to make a life that feels better and more well for them. I think good. But it's overly, uh, it's overly used. It's, it's a supported approach. That means it gets, has a lot of support in the culture. That means that it's, that it's out there. But other approaches some, uh, are not out, out there as much. So lots of things, as we were, you were saying at the end of the break, from angers to judgments to our sexuality mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. our life with our families to, to conflicts, all those things I try to write about and say, here are ways that mainstream or Dr. Phil might look at all those issues but let's see if we can look at those differently. Here's some stories. Here's some research. Here's some approaches that uh, have worked in my therapeutic practice and, and, and for some others. Love that. So you bring, you, you bring up something, and I, I, I loved reading about this in your book. Um, you say anger is one of the most powerful tools we have to instigate healing. I know I've done everything I could, and most women I know do everything they can to avoid feeling angry. So can you tell me a little bit? more about the upside of anger. Yeah. When, a lot of times I think of anger as a boiling pot. It has a lot of potency. It has some heat. It has some energy in it. Now, if you put a lid tight on that particular pot, then it'll build up pressure. And then what will happen is at some point it will blow up. It won't be able to handle that pressure. And then people have what's called a bad temper, Right. Hey, Tammy, I've been thinking of this for the last five years, right? I'm exaggerating. Well, five minutes or whatever it's been, longer than I wanted to, right? And now that's it. Now I'm going to finally tell you. So now not only am I going to tell you what I feel and think about this moment, I'm going to give you five years worth (laughs) of heat. So a lot of times what's the problem with anger and the way it's dealt with is not the boiling heat, but the lid that is not adjustable. It's not regulatable. So most people have a lot of energy in there. 
For instance, in that example, maybe I would want to wait only three dates or 15 minutes or, or one year rather than five years, whatever it is before I say, you know what, this is not working for me or this is the third time you were not, uh, you didn't show up on time for me. Can we mm-hmm. chat about that? That's not working for me. Maybe I don't want to wait till the 10th and then blow up. So I love that. Of- it's Yeah, it's about learning how to speak up on your behalf before it gets to the place of being rage. That's right. Now, that could be internally around, like, speaking up for somebody. But um, I have to tell you this personal story, uh, which I don't usually, don't usually tell as personal because I don't want to <laughs> get people worrying about me or something like that. But, but, I'll, but I'll say anyway because we're having a, a warm conversation. I had a dad that was really rough. People would say he was abusive. He, he used his fists and hands in ways that, that he shouldn't have. So that's pretty clear. There's no excuse for that. That shouldn't have happened. But I remember... Uh, telling a therapist that I worked with, a guy named Mark Schupach, he was a Swiss psychologist, and I was telling him how my father used to be when he drove in the car. He had that road rage thing that many of us know something about. Only when he got rageful, he might, his hand might have swung and given somebody a, a, a hurt that they shouldn't have gotten. So he did that, and I was telling Mark, this is what happened. And he said, when did that happen? I said, whenever he got stuck at a red light, this... <laughs> You know, anger would come up in him. And, uh, and Mark said to me, oh, I see. Your father must have been stuck at a red light his whole life. He should have gone through that light. Wow. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's so true. He lived a life within a certain box that he thought was good, for better or worse, right? He had ideas about what it meant to be a man and a father and all those things. So, mm-hmm. so you know, he deserves understanding and he deserves confrontation, both, right? But he lived a life in that particular box, he never went for what he wanted. He got stopped mm-hmm. at a red light that says, this is who you need to be. This is what it's appropriate to be. And that way you could say, there's a boiling in there. And rather than go through the red light that he put in front of him, I have to be this kind of a person. That's a red light inside of him. No one made him be that way, but there's a, there are cultural norms that sort of pressured him, you could say. Rather right. than go through that red light, every time he got to a symbolic red light on the, uh, on the road, all that experience came up. I wanted to go, but I'm being stopped. All that suppressed anger would come up. That's right. So if we wanted Mm -hmm. to help him stop being so abusive, one, we should not let him, we should stop him in the moment. We shouldn't let him hurt people who are smaller than him. I'm, I'm down for that. But then therapeutically, someone should have said, what's stopping you in your life? So we don't only anger manage him. We find out what that meant to do. He might have yes. left selling insurance, which he didn't love only, and gone to do some of the other things he wanted to do. He would have gone through the red light in his life. He might not have resented being a family person so much. But that takes a little more love and a little less condemnation, right? The police should yeah, condemn I, him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, something I heard um, one of my teachers say, and I just love this. Beneath anger is hurt. So mm. he was hurting about something. It sounds like you've already gotten, you've gotten to the place of really understanding what that was, but he probably didn't unless right. somebody would ask him the question. That's right. He was hurting. And then from the lesson from my life is then, David, be careful about red lights in your life. Where are you stopped? Are you sitting at a red light somewhere? Which I, off, I do, and I do for, for, for weeks or months or years sometimes. And then I kind of go, huh, I better write that book. I've been, I was teaching at university and I was pra- and had a, a counseling practice and everything was going well, but I wanted to be more creative and write a book. My car wanted to make a turn onto book writing, but I kept on saying, uh, this life is going pretty well. 
so you can see how I wasn't going through a certain red light that said, mm-hmm. you know, you took a while to build a certain career, stay here. And that way I'm at a red light. And that way I'm like my family, becoming like my father. No, I didn't take it out on mm-hmm. people the way he did. I wasn't only, only friendly with people, by the way, <laughs> but I never took it out the way he did. I had certain limits right. to how I expressed myself. I'm glad about that. But yes, in a way, absolutely. Yeah, but in a way I'm the same. If I stay at that red light, I'm, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to get angry. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that out on somebody else, or I'm going to take that out on myself inside. That's so fascinating because, yeah, what I'm hearing you say, if we live a logical life rather than a, a creative, soulful life, we're not going to feel fulfilled or happy. You know, and, and I think that's, I've often thought that's why people overeat. They're not fulfilled. What is it they're hungry for? Or even addiction. I would like to, to touch on the subject of addiction because I think that's another way it can manifest. That's great. Yeah. People, people use substances. Now we're talking about addictions to substances. People can talk about mm-hmm. behavioral addictions, but let's stay with substances. That means, you know, chemistry, right? Chemicals of some kind, whether that's marijuana or methamphetamines, whatever. People are using those inappropriately, often hurts their bodies and hurts other people and hurts their finances and hurts their relationships. So that's clear. Most of us agree with that. So there's not great wisdom in that. We just can see that the effects of violence around, around substance use. But people are reaching to those substances because they don't know any other way yet to make contact with something inside of them that they need. So... Um, uh, I'm thinking of a person who, who I know drank a lot. Uh, he was an alcoholic. He drank quite a bit every day. And so, and he said, how can you help me stop drinking? And again, instead of saying, let me help you stop drinking, that's true. Drinking is bad. He already knows drinking is bad. We all know that, at least the amount that he was doing. I can say, can you tell me about drinking? What's it like? Where do you do it? Tell me more about it. So before I judge it, let me understand. And he says, well... After work, I go out and I go to a bar and I sit and I drink for hours. And I said, I said, what do you do there? He said, well, I talk to everybody. Now, this person was a really lonely person. He also was incredibly shy and didn't have the inner resource to go out and meet people. So without the alcohol, mm-hmm. he was a person that never made connections with people. He'd go home and be alone and be miserable, potentially even suicidal, potentially dangerous how lonely mm-hmm. this person was. So alcohol was, quote-unquote, and I get the feeling of it, quote-unquote, a friend. Not the best kind of friend to have, I understand. Right. But then that friend said, you want to meet people? Let me help you. Right. I'll make it True easier soon. for you. Mm-hmm. So Gave him permission that, to be social. Permission mm-hmm. to be social, to say hello to someone where he would have been unbearably shy if somebody didn't respond back by saying hello back. He would have felt devastated by that. So mm-hmm. this person then, to get off, off his alcohol, he needed another friend. He needed someone to say, the alcoholic, uh, your, your, your program to get off alcohol is to get help with meeting people, because that's mm-hmm. what he was doing with it. So somebody else might say, no, he just needs to say no to alcohol, but he needs help with something. He needs help meeting people. He needs a little alcohol around, quote unquote. That means somebody who says, it's okay, say that. It's okay to say you're shy, whatever. He needed a little help to do those things. So his, his stopping alcohol treatment, again, was a socialization program, which we never would have known if I didn't ask him, tell me what it's like to be do- to drinking like you drink. Mm. That's so fascinating. I love the way you think. Thanks. You, you have a great brain and an amazing heart, and that to me is the best combination of all. <laughs> uh, thank you. My hands are together. I, if I, you could see me, I'd be a little bow for the, uh, for the respect. 
It's a, people it. are so, I mean, you know, people are so incredible, so amazing. I'm never, <laughs> I'm never not surprised. I'm always surprised. I should say it in the positive. I'm always surprised listening to having someone tell me about something that sounds awful and terrible and, and they're definitely suffering. So I, so I would like them to help them do less of that suffering. But then once we inquire, and sometimes even within a short period of time, I can get a sense. They may not be able to change it yet. That guy may not be able to go out and talk to people after one session, but we might understand something about what he's doing. And he might have been doing this for 15 years and never understood it because no one ever inquired, including him of himself, what the heck am I doing? He only thought, I'm doing something stupid. (laughs) Yes, but to judge it as stupid isn't going to help heal it. It's not going to fix anything. It doesn't fix anything. That's yeah, judgment right. rarely works. Right. So something I believe is we heal when we apply love to the places inside that hurt. And that compassion is the the ultimate elixir to um, dissolve shame and to really um, support us on our healing path and have us go on that upward trajectory. To me, that that's the deal. And it feels like you really embody those qualities of, of compassion and respect and that you really love people is, is amazing. Yeah. Compassion is an amazing thing. Toni Morrison, one of my favorite authors, she said, and I, I quoted it somewhere in my book, she says uh, about loving oneself, she says, you can't love yourself in the abstract. I mean, I can't say, I'm going to love David. She says, you have to do it. You have to love your hair, your nose. Now, she's a black woman, so she's the body is so important. You have to know your skin color all the way down to your toes, right? It has to be a specific act. Is also. Tony McMillan? Tony uh, McMillan? Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison. Yes. Yes. I've read her right? book. So yes. As a black woman, then she's very aware of what it's like to look in the mirror and not love her body, right? Oh my mm. gosh, I have kinky hair. Oh my gosh, I have broad hips. That's a, a racial bias that has hurt people. But we all look in the mirror and have a bias. I have a Jewish-looking nose, right? So I might wish that that were different, or I have more, or my belly is a little bit this way, or whatever, right? <laughs> or my my hair is thinning and becoming gray. Whatever it is, we all have a way of looking at ourselves. So the love then has to be applied in the specific. Mm-hmm. We have to listen to people. They say, "I don't love themselves." I say, "How does it look for you not to love yourself?" What do you mean? What do you? I just don't love myself. Tell me, how do you know? I would say, how do you know you don't love yourself? Well, uh, I, every day I think certain thoughts that I'm this or I'm that or I'm stupid or whatever. Okay, that person has inner criticism. Their experience of not loving themselves is an inner criticism, an inner attack. They need help with inner attack. If I send them to a massage to say, be nice to yourself, I'm not going to help them because they need help being accosted and standing up to themselves inside. <laughs> right? Another person would say, I tell you why I don't love myself. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, everybody around me is, is acting a certain way, and I never do that. My mother, father, everybody is successful. They're all doing A, B, and C. And me, I'm, I'm off painting pictures, and I can hardly afford health insurance. I say, oh, that person doesn't know how to love themselves in the context of a family that has different values. So that's, I have a chapter about that, by the way. So that becomes an yes. interesting question. They're, they have a certain, certain, there is a uniqueness to them. How do I love myself when I'm not the same as other people? That's a different kind of problem, a different kind of self-love and compassion problem they're presenting. Yeah, so it's not one size fits all. That's right. 
I, I really like that. So another area that one size does not fit all is the arena of sex. And I feel like that's such an important subject and you address that in your book and how it seems sexuality and shame are so woven together in our society. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. There's a Dr. Phil show where he has, uh, which was the stimulus for the for that particular chapter and then lots of stories and research, of course, because all the chapters try to tell stories so you can see other perspectives. So there's a, a, a young man, I think he's in his early 20s, so I can't remember his exact age, let's say he's 23 or 24, and there's more to the story, I don't want to take too long with it, but he, he his mother, she, she's single, I think she's a widow, uh, uh, husband had died, she's in her 50s, and he's grown up now, and there's no husband, and she starts getting, being interested in having a sexual life again, and she gets interested in younger men, not not below age, right? <laughs> younger men. And, mm-hmm. and, and the young man, her son, is very offended by this. And Dr. Phil basically agrees. Oh, my gosh, what are you doing? What a terrible thing. You know, he, the son says, you should be home sitting on your couch, he says to her, you know, <laughs> reading a book, not out dancing with young men, right? And uh, she wasn't doing anything hurtful, apparently, other than playing with, dancing with, et cetera, or younger men. She wasn't a prostitute or something like that. So, uh, so you have that shaming view. Here's a, she's a middle-aged woman, and the culture sort of goes along with a norm, a norm that says she ought to be sitting on the couch, not developing her sexual life. But the, the keys to, to, to understanding sexuality from a non-shaming point of view have to start with a few basic things. One is people need to trust their feelings. Mm-hmm. You can't trust your feelings. So You'll never know how to make boundaries. You'll only do them by rule. You won't know how to say, yes, a little more, well, slow down, let's stop, let's back up, let's go forward, let's go back. All those subtleties to the mating dance, to a sexual dance, requires that you're in touch with something. There's no rules for that that are better than your own feelings. You have to be able to know them and speak for them. So if you teach somebody about sexuality, say, here's the rules, do this and don't do that, they never learn that they have feelings that can guide them in that way. And I do feel like our feelings are our compass. And so many of us were told, I don't care what you think or feel, you do what you're told. Children are supposed to be seen, not heard. And we lose and we lose uh, touch with that really important tool in our toolbox. It's hard to navigate in life right. without that important tool called our feelings. That's right. And then if you give me, if you were my parents, so to speak, and you said, David, this is what's right to do and this is what's wrong with to do, which is good. I'm glad you're trying to protect me and maybe you have some good intelligence about that. But if you give me only those rules and never talk to me about your feelings or my feelings, so we're having a discussion that has feeling qualities, not just informational qualities in there, then I'm going to go out when I'm 16 years old and I'm going to go to a party and I'm going to have somebody's going to offer me a couple of beers or something else that's going to loosen me up. And now the thoughts in your head are going to be that you put in my head are going to be less there. And I have nothing else to then guide me, right? Now my thoughts aren't there. What am I going to do, right? <laughs> well, I don't have the contact with my inner guidance, my inner compass, as you would say. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to do all kinds of things that I have no clear sense about what I'm doing, how to manage, how to navigate. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I really feel when I work with clients uh, and, and even talking to my friends or even when I'm talking to myself, which happens a lot, what do I really feel? What honors me right now? And if, if I take the time to ask the question, the answer is there. Yeah. So rather than, you know, people will come to me sometimes, Tammy, what do I do about this or that? And I'll just say, I don't know. What do you feel? What honors you? 
what do you think? What do you feel you should do about this or that? And if I turn it around, they tend to find their own answers, which are so profound. That's a, we that's just a need great to take question. time. Taking mm-hmm. time. This is, this is a relatively forbidden thing, especially for women, especially for women of, of my generation and older. I'm 57. So in, and when I'm saying it's forbidden, it's taking time for oneself. So mm-hmm. that means that if, uh, that if I'm a person who grew up with certain ideas, that I'm there for, some, I'm there for other people, that I'm sitting down and I'm listening to you. Let's say I'm a woman and you're a man and you're my husband. I'm listening to you like I should be or we're on a date or whatever it is or you're my boss or, or a friend. I'm listening properly. That's good. It's good to be a good listener. But I'm not listening inside of me. Mm. I'm there for you only. Now, there are moments that that's great. But if that becomes a lifestyle, that means I don't take time to listen inside. And many women of my generation and my parents' generation who were 80s, 80s, well, they're, they're past by now, but that generation, who developed smoking patterns, I mean, this is a really fascinating, did so to turn inside. I'll, I'll give you a quick sense of what that looks like. If I were my mother, for instance, but I, this is true of many women, and my mother was a two-pack-a-day smoker for 40-plus years, then she was trained to be a good wife. That meant she'd sit there and be there for everybody else, right? And then she, but she pulled out a cigarette, and if you were talking to her, she would look at you, she would listen, she would nod, you would think she's totally there for you, and then she'd light up a cigarette and inhale it, and as she blew the smoke out, she would look up to the sky away from you for about 10 seconds, and she'd come back. So every time she had that inhale and exhale, she got to take a break. That was her time. That was her time. She didn't know she was doing that, but smoking was her way of saying, I'm not only here from you, I'm here for the sky, my own thoughts, my own feelings. She needed Gave help. her permission to have that moment or seconds to herself. Isn't that amazing? Just seconds that was worth two packs a day for her psychology. She well, didn't she have any found other another way. way to do that for herself. Maybe she could have kicked the habit. She could have kicked that habit much easier, and she did at later, later on in her life. But she needed help with something, not just stopping smoking. She needed help to, to think, I'm important too. Sometimes I can say, hey, can we slow the conversation down? Can I tell you what's on my mind? Can I take a little break? Can I tell you what I'm feeling? She needed permission to do all those things. So her ending smoking program required teaching her those new skills that don't look anything like smoking <laughs> to, to the average person, but they very much like smoking for her. Yeah, and it is profound. I mean, I've known a lot of people who smoke. Actors seem to need to smoke, and it is a way to create a barrier or it is their friend. It's a place of, of peace. So I, I've helped people kick the habit by virtue of just finding different ways of satisfying their souls on a deeper level. Beautifully so, said. Beautifully so David, yeah. we don't have much time here, but I want you to do a shout out again so people can find you and get a copy of your book, Talking Back to Dr. Phil. Okay, I'd love to. Thank you. Again, the, the website is Talking Back to Dr. Talking Back to Dr. Phil. And like I said, you can find all kinds of things there. The book goes through uh, all kinds of different issues from anger and judgment and and honesty to conflict. How do you have conflict in relationships? How do you love that? To addictions and obsessions, families, domestic violence, racial issues, all kinds of issues that psychology looks at and then says, here's a Dr. Phil show that shows you one way. Here's how you might think about yourself. And here's lots of research and stories and insights from other traditions and other psychological traditions that say, here's another way to look at those that would start from the perspective of believing in yourself as opposed to thinking something's wrong with you. 
So go to talkingbacktodrphil.com and you can find me there. You can write to me if you want to do some counseling and coaching. Most of what I do is, is on the phone and Skype. Um, uh, you can find out how to contact me there. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. I feel like I could have talked to you for another couple hours. There's so much material here. And I just think you're so heartfelt and so fun and quirky. And just I just love you. <laughs> Thank you. That's a beautiful so, thing to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've enjoyed you thoroughly. And to my listeners, I've enjoyed hanging out with you thoroughly. Such an honor. If you want to get a hold of me, would love to hear from you. Find me on Facebook or go to my website, Tammy B. Ph.D., Com. That's spelled with an I, T-A-M-M-I-B-P-H-D.com. Would love to hear your questions, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, advice, constructive criticism. Do you have an idea for a show? Do you want to be on the show? Do you know somebody that should be on the show? I just love connecting with you. So thank you so much to my producers, Mike and Brooks. You guys are amazing. You make us look good. <laughs> and Brent Carey, shout out to you. You're a rock star. Okay. Take care of yourself. Honor yourself. Listen to yourself. Love yourself. Onward and upward. Bye for now.